One Thing series. Our desire is that our One Thing series truly helps you to lead better and grow faster. Every month on our podcast, we feature a great guest always on the topic of leadership, and we blast it out to you from the schoolhouse302.com. Thank you, TJ. Please share this with other leaders you know that are looking and craving to get better. Thank you. So here we are with our guest, Austin Cleon. Thank you for being here, Austin. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excellent. This month, we're focused on the importance of creativity and how a leader can cultivate that in the workplace. We're incredibly excited to have Austin on our podcast, particularly because this month we wanted to hone in on creativity regardless of the situation and how it really should be a way of leadership um, for those in charge. TJ and I are inspired by your books. So much of your work speaks to authenticity and uncovering the realities of life and how to keep going, um, which resonate with us. Um, and on a side note, we just love the fact that you wrote a book that you said you needed to read. So for us, that, was, uh, that, that spoke to us in volume. So TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Austin? Sure. Thanks, Joe. Our guest this month is Austin Cleon. Austin uh, Cleon is the New York Times bestselling author of Steal Like an Artist, which is my favorite, Show Your Work, and the Steal Like an Artist Journal, a notebook for creative kleptomaniacs. His work has been translated into over 20 languages and featured on NPR's Morning Edition, PBS NewsHour, and in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. New York Magazine called his work brilliant. The Atlantic called him positively one of the most interesting people on the internet, and the New Yorker said his poems resurrect the newspaper when everybody else is declaring it dead. He speaks about creativity in the digital age for organizations such as Pixar, Google, South by Southwest, TEDx, and The Economist. In previous lives, he worked as a librarian, a web designer, and an advertising copywriter. He grew up in the cornfields of Ohio, spent a dozen summers in Austin, Texas, and now he's taking a sabbatical on Lake Erie with his wife and sons. We're so thrilled to have Austin with us today. So, okay, Austin, let's talk about this idea of creativity and maintaining a state of creativity in both good and bad times. And keep going, you write about tidying up your mess and this societal compulsion to clean things up. However, you say that you love your mess and that creativity is really about connections and that we cannot make connections when we silo stuff into one space. So we have a question for you. How can leaders resist this temptation to want everything nice and neat um, and for productive messes? And so we want to find opportunities for growth and innovation so that we can keep productive and keep creative despite our need for things to be clean. We want to hear anything that you might say about creativity and pushing new boundaries. Um, I think that I think of it in terms of what I do with my children in the house. So I have boys who are six and four and um, the potential to destroy the house is there. <laughs> um, and yet we want, we want them to be, 
that we want them to explore materials. We want them to be creative. We want them to build things and tear them apart. We want them to draw and paint and do all these wonderful things. Um, and so for me, uh, it's a lot about creating time and space for chaos to happen. So I think a lot of leaders are dealing with schedules and structures in which they're trying to sort of make things happen and keep things on track. And the creative person is sort of doing the opposite. The creative person is sort of um, inviting chaos so that they can sort of play with chaos. And there's something about making order out of chaos. That's really kind of the creative agenda in some ways is that you kind of take this mess of stuff that's in front of you and you start arranging it into some sort of orderly fashion. Um, and so I, I think a kind of controlled chaos is sort of what you want to shoot for, uh, whether you're, you know, running a team of creative people or a team of teachers or running a classroom or whether you're running a household is that you want to sort of set up special time and space and materials in which people can have that kind of chaotic creative experience. Um, but then like kind of keep it corralled, you know what I mean? And so, um, I, I think that for me, it's uh, time, space and materials are sort of the magical ingredients of creative work. So you have to have blocks of time and, and hopefully you know, pretty long blocks of time for people to sort of get lost and, you know, kind of indulge in their work and space, uh, which are, you know, spaces um, that can be a studio, that can be a work desk, you know, all, you know, physical space for that to happen. And then materials uh, for the people to work with. And when I find often that when uh, space time and materials are sort of, when they sort of mesh well together, uh, that's when you get really good work. That's excellent. I love that notion, Austin, of space, time, and materials, all three coming together. Do you find, you actually said something that really resonating with me about this indulging in their work. TJ and I have done a ton of research uh, and our own findings on this idea that people are not meaningfully engaged. And we see some staggering studies out of like Gallup and some others. This indulging in our work, do you think when you create this space to, you know, have this corralled chaos, as you put it, um, does that help engagement overall, help that connectivity to what they're producing? Because um, we find that a lot of people are unfortunately disengaged. Do you see this as a way to increase the engagement, find that flow, perhaps, in their work? Um, I think people engage with what they care about. You know, so I think that I had an experience recently at the Cleveland Museum of Art. They um, every Sunday they have an open uh, workshop where families and people of all ages can go downstairs. And there's this classroom where they sort of have like they have sort of prearranged activities that you can do, like material setup. Like, but they and they sort of have an overall theme, but. It's very open-ended uh, of what you can do. And so like you could sit down and make a book, you could sit down and build a castle, you could sit down and uh, sculpt something. Um, 
and it was interesting when when I was I, I was interested in that arrangement, how it was like the space was there for people to work, but they were sort of given the choice of what they would actually work on. And there wasn't necessarily any kind of, um, it, it wasn't as much focused on the product of what was going to happen. Um, but as far as engagement, I sort of noticed that, like my kids are interesting when they're in those situations because they're sort of promiscuous at first as far as what they're interested in. Like they'll kind of bounce around a little bit like, Oh, well I want to draw now, but then I want to make a house. And, but then at a certain point they'll sort of like get zoned in and want to spend extra time on something. And that's really when the like engagement happens. And I, I think of that in terms of like artists and creative people, there's sort of this flitting fluttering activity of like you're sort of like sampling different things and you're like kind of you know playing around and then you kind of hit something that you really want to pay attention to and that's when you kind of go deep and so I think that's like kind of the problem with you know the educational space in particular is like you're trying to how do you expose people to you know, how do you expose your students to all these different things they could be doing? And then once they hit on one of those things, how do you provide the experience for them to, you know, kind of go deep with it and not be interrupted? You know, because I, I feel like those are two different modes. Those like kind of sampling modes where you're kind of like just, you know, browsing around and looking for something and you're kind of trying to get, you know, dug in and then that kind of deep work you know that happens when you focus in and engage so um i'm not really sure how to i think there are different modes and i don't know for sure how to um i don't know how i think for 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 me engagement is just about kind of having again, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's about having the time space and materials and it's uninterrupted time, like time where you're not, the bell isn't going to ring and you're going to have to go on to the next thing. Um, space that you're, you know, sort of designated safe area for you to work in and then materials that, that are freely available to you. And I feel like that sort of leads to engagement. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, we're going to move on to our, <laughs> our five leadership questions, our one thing. But no, I mean, you make some v incredible points that I we are really struggling with in classrooms today, and that's creating an environment for students, still keeping pace with like curriculum and so on, but creating an environment that engages students and offers choice. And TJ and I both have seen remarkable teachers do this. And, you know, whether that's like with the reading or a certain text, how it's presented, whether it's audio, video, or like, you know, literally print, you know, it's something we're really exploring um, in the classroom to create this level of engagement, but to allow students just time to learn and enjoy the process of learning. Um, so it hits, it hits home deep, so we appreciate it. Well, I feel a lot of times that educators are sort of, you know, it's, it's tough because school isn't necessarily um, 
perhaps this is controversial. I don't, I don't think anything is controversial when you're talking to educators about education, honestly, because everyone knows the struggles. But I think part of the struggle is the actual structure of school, you know, and that teachers are kind of, you're sort of stuck with these structures and what you do inside them is, is sort of a creative act on its own. So I think that one, one reason, you know, teaching is so difficult is that the variables always change, right? You've got this sort of structure that you're stuck with as far as like scheduling and curriculum and things like that. But then you have these wild variables that come in, which are the, you know, 10 to 20 to 30 or 40 <laughs> kid classroom who all have different experiences and different levels and, and all that stuff, you know? So like I, it's almost like I, I, I see a lot of, that that to me sounds like a like a creativity problem. Yeah, <laughs> yes. and just so our listeners know, Austin doesn't mind me sharing this, um, but just for our audience, um, Austin's mom was a principal, so he's he's enjoyed that life as well, and and I'm sure has heard quite a bit from his mom. Um, but I know our audience members will uh, enjoy knowing that. Um, Austin, let's switch gears a little bit. Who, who's one person or group? who you follow for either knowledge or inspiration and where could we find them? Oh, um, you know, I'm, I'm an artist and a writer. So, you know, a lot of the people I follow are artists and writers. Um, I think all educators should know about the work that um, the cartoonist Linda Berry is doing. Um, hmm. She has a series of wonderful books about, um, pictures and words together or cartooning and writing. Um, the first book is called what it is. The second book is called picture this. Um, the third book is called syllabus, which is about her experiences actually teaching. And the fourth book that's coming out in October is called making comics. And Linda is at the university of Wisconsin in Madison and um, she teaches comics and cartooning, but for a while she had this really interesting place called the Image Lab, where she would take four-year-olds and put them together with PhD students. And the four-year-olds and the PhD students would draw out some of the research problems that the students were having. And it was kind of this kind of amazing, interesting um, mix of ages and, um, She's a really wonderful, she really, she was very, um, she had a really powerful experience with public education when she was younger, and I think she's a natural teacher, but I think the way that she teaches is, a, is very interesting, um, and so I think teachers would get a kick out of her books, and also you can follow her on like Instagram, um, I don't know what her handle is, but you can yeah. just look up uh, Linda Berry on Instagram, I love her. Um, I also love, uh, I think, you know, to go further afield, um, the musician Nick Cave has a really wonderful newsletter right now um, called The Red Hand Files, where he takes questions from his audience and answers them in this really thoughtful, wonderful way every Monday. Um, I think that's a really wonderful, the, you know, those might be two, one kind of close to education or tangentially related to education. And then Nick Cave, who is, I think, one of the great songwriters and performers, 
you know, I think both those th- those people right now are sort of at the same stages of their career. Um, just these wonderful, brilliant people who are sort of taking advantage of online media in different ways, like Nick Cave with his newsletter and Linda Berry with her Instagram. So check them out. We'll do. We'll, and we'll make <laughs> sure we reference and link back to their stuff in the show notes. Cool. And so people can find them. Um, that's, that's fantastic. Um, what's the one thing that you think people should try to do on a regular basis that might make a difference in their day or life? I think people should walk more. Um, I think that everyone should take a 30 to 40 to an hour long walk every day. Um, I think there's something magical about walking that, kind of activates uh, all your senses. Um, I think that, you know, I think we're all sort of battling phone addiction and social media addiction. Um, And I think that walking in a disconnected fashion, you know, when you have your phone in airplane mode um, and just walking around, is one of the best things that people can do to sort of reconnect with their everyday world. Um, And, you know, it can be walking through the woods. It can be walking down your street, you know, but I think taking a good walk is something that, you know, the great thinkers throughout time have um, done. And I think the other thing that people could do is, uh, is keep a, keep a notebook or a diary. Um, I think for me, I'm really inspired by Henry David Thoreau, um, who sort of spent his days taking these epic long walks. And then he came back and wrote about everything he thought about on his walk. Um, And I think that keeping some sort of daily notebook, keeping a good old fashioned diary, or even some sort of log, just a little list of what you do every day. I think it helps you pay attention to your life. And I think it helps you sort of detect patterns and figure out problems and figure out interests and figure out like what are the things you're sort of stumbling on throughout your life? What are the things that, you know, you, you need to work on? Um, I had really good teachers when I was in middle school, um, English teacher, Sharon Neff and my art teacher, Robin Helsel. They both at the same time, it was kind of interesting in different classes, um, had us keep notebooks. And Mrs. Neff, we would keep a composition book in a big crate. And every morning when we came into English class, we would have to go over and get our notebook out of the crate and sit down at the desk. And there would be a prompt on the board that we would have to answer. And sometimes it was like really, like I remember one of the questions, which will date me and my age is, uh, what do you think of the OJ trial? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so we would just have to write a page about whatever was on the board. But the other thing Mrs. Neff did that was kind of cool is like she'd put a Walt Whitman poem on the board and the assignment would be just to copy it. And I always thought that was really, that that must have been like a lazy day for her. Like I was like, oh, here we go. Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) like copying some poem down real original Mrs. Neff. Of course, now um, I do that routinely in my notebook. I copy down my favorite poems and I realize now that when you have students copy poems, there's something sort of 
subconscious that happens where you sort of internalize the poem as you're copying it. Um, and then Mrs. Helsel uh, would have us draw the paintings that she showed every day. And then we'd have to like copy down the, uh, the information about the painting in the notebook. And um, I sort of directly around that time took up keeping a notebook of my own. Uh, and, you know, I'm probably 13 or 14. And that's sort of been a lifelong habit. And there's something about keeping a notebook, I think, that leads to um, good thinking. Because I think what happens is when you have a notebook, when you have a space in which you write ideas, you actually come up with more ideas because there's something about having a place to put your ideas that actually invites the ideas to come. Thoreau wrote about that. He thought that thoughts were nest eggs. and I've always thought of the term nest egg as being like what old people keep saved up for their retirement. Um, but <laughs> right. actually the, the way that Thoreau was talking about nest eggs is they used to actually put eggs in a nest to encourage like chickens or to lay eggs next to that egg. It's like, it's like an old kind of farmer thing. So the way Thoreau talked about it was that if you, put thoughts in a certain place that that thought will invite other thoughts. And I think that's how keeping notebooks works. I think when you have a place to put your ideas and when you're carrying something in your pocket around all day, it sort of invites the ideas to come because you have a place to put them. Yeah. That makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, I just started my superintendent journey and that's one thing I was hoping to do is kind of write like keep keep almost a not an account but really what you're saying journaling about this whole time and and one primary reason is i think i may have taken for granted my experience as a principal at the time and and yeah. well for 7 years and now i'm in a different even a different state of mind and so on so this really resonates i think it's it's wise advice I think that's a really good idea. I know that my mother kept a some kind of a loose diary uh, when she was a principal. Um, for one thing, I, I remember encouraging her <laughs> to write down some of the crazy right. things that would happen. But I think it also was really a really good record of you know if she can't if she ran into problems later or um, but I you know for me it's. I don't have a very good memory. So mm -hmm. I have a great memory for things I read. I have a great memory for movie dialogue and song lyrics and all the things that aren't really that important, all the kind of pop culture debris that I come across. But I can't really remember what happens to me very well. And so my notebooks for me are sort of a way of keeping track of my life. And um, they become increasingly important to me um, now that I have children because I spend a lot of my time in my diary writing down things that my kids are doing, what they're into, what they're reading, what they're saying. Um, and they change so quickly that it's very hard to forget where you were even a year ago but I always know because I can go back and sort of read about it. And 
you know, you, again, you detect the patterns of your life and, um, it's just a way to pay attention. Austin, our next question is, is there one thing that you would like to learn how to do or, or to do better? Something that you don't know how to do now that, that you would want to learn how to do? I have a big list of things that I would like to know how to do. I would love to learn how to speak Spanish. Um, I just kind of, I've lived in Texas for 12 years and I haven't learned Spanish. And I think that's like just pathetic. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, there's a couple of dual language schools in Austin. So we're kind of exploring that with, for our kids. And I know some people in Austin who take a lot of vacations in Mexico and that's sort of how they learn Spanish as a family. So I'd like to do that. I'd like to learn Spanish. I'd like to, um, I'd like to get better at color. I'm, I'm like 15% of the male population. I'm actually red, green, color blind. So I don't act, color isn't a very intuitive or natural thing for me. Um, so I'd always want to get better at color. Um, I would very much like to learn to cook. I um, grew up, my mom was a fan, she was a home ec teacher before she was a principal. So she's just a fantastic cook. And I married at 23 a woman who's a fantastic cook. So um, I'm a guy who's been cooked for his whole life, and I'm very spoiled. But um, my friend Wendy McNaughton illustrated this uh, cookbook called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which is now a really popular Netflix show. And I really want to use that book uh, this winter to learn how to cook. So, yeah, I want to learn Spanish. I want to learn color and I want to learn how to cook. <laughs> I, and so just on a side note real quick, the, the, uh, salt, fat, acid, heat, um, being a career and tech school district, we have culinary arts programs. Oh, cool. And, yeah. And our nutritional specialist recommended I watch that and yeah. I love it. And then I, I watched it on Netflix and then now um, I'm looking forward to reading the book. But uh, so yeah. do you remember the, the woman who was drawing? in the last episode so oh, that's yeah. that's wendy that's the illustrator that's my friend wendy oh that's yeah that's yeah. fantastic all right austin that's this is incredible uh stuff what's the one thing that led to or continues to support your growth um you know as a leader but as an artist as a writer what what continues to motivate you and to support your growth reading I mean, I am a writer because I'm a professional writer because I wanted to be a professional reader. Um, I love books. I love reading books. And I sort of, you know, my MO now is I sort of read and read and read. And, I, you know, when I can't find the book that I want to read, that's the book I need to write, you know. Um, and that's sort of how I think about my career now is, is I have interests and I have things that I'm sort of obsessed with or interested in. And I just read and read and read about them until I see a gap somewhere that I can sort, you know, some, some spot on the bookshelf that isn't full or some bookshelf that hasn't been invented yet, you know? Yeah. And that's, and that's what I, you know, that's, that's, that's where my work comes in. And so for me, it's really about reading and um, my, the kind of joy of my young life as a parent has been watching my boys learn how to read. Um, 
and how they sort of just watching that come alive with them and watching them just sort of devour books has been yeah, it's a incredible. real kick. Yeah. My wife is a uh, first grade teacher and, oh, wow. yeah. and, and she ha- and it is one thing that she always says is the most remarkable part of her job is from word identification to sentences to, yeah. you know, the whole writing process and then the reading process and it's probably one of the greatest joys of of her teaching and she's saying like I see evidence every day of growth it's remarkable yeah I we've got really lucky we've had early readers so like they haven't even really we haven't really had to teach them anything that's great read to them all day and uh, they just kind of picked it up so it's been really cool Um, but I you know to watch that happen you know the first time they go and they read by themselves is really this kind of it happens gradually but you know the first time you watch your kid just like pick up a book and sit in a chair and read it is really just this kind of wonderful and that's really been the theme of my life for the past you know half decade is that my kids have been so you know a lot of teachers you'll hear them say you know, they teach me as much as I teach them. And you really do, I get that. I spend an enormous amount of time with my kids for someone my age and in my position. But, and for me, it's, they really, they give me good habits in a sense. Like it's sort of a, it's sort of a cycle, you know, it's like the more I read, the more I sit around and read, the more they sit around and read. And the more they sit around and read, the more I read. And then the more I draw in front of them, the more they'll draw. And then the more they draw, the more I draw. And, you know, it's just this kind of healthy, it's a good healthy loop. Of course, it can go all, you know, the more I yell, the more they yell. (laughs) So, you know, you have to have these healthy loops. But if you can get a good healthy loop, you know, they really can inspire you as much as, you know, I, I really think my kids have, put me in touch with way more than I've put them in touch with. Wow. That's, that's saying something. It's impressive. Also, let's, we're going to wrap up our, with our final question. What's one thing that you used to think that you don't think anymore? I think I used to devalue the role of luck Mm. in success. Um, We are sort of hard work and diligence and discipline are very, very wonderful traits to work on. And they're very, they're crucial to someone who wants to do something with their lives. Um, But I have, the older I get, the more I think about luck. And I think a lot about context. Um, I think that people in successful positions who devalue the role of luck are, are not, you know, I, I think that of course there's always those, you know, the the quotes attributed to various people. It's like, you know, um, luck visits someone who's working or or luck finds the prepared or, or whatever it is. But I think about, I think as I've gotten older, I think about how lucky I was to be born in the first place because I think that's your first bit of luck. And then 
who I was born to, which was my second bit of luck, and then how my life has sort of been influenced so greatly by my surroundings and my context and the time and place in which I live. And I think that sort of acknowledging luck and acknowledging context helps me as a teacher because I, when I think about people who I'm trying to speak to, I tend to pull out, uh, kind of zoom out and try to extrapolate principles um, that can help people in multiple situations and not just in like very, you know, like a lot of people, when they come to me, they want the exact answer. They, they want, I want to be a famous artist. How do I do it? And there's a hundred different answers. What I can provide to them is, you know, I can't say, well, you know, you know, get on Twitter and post three times a day and you'll be famous in three years. You know, that's not, <laughs> I can't do that. All I can do is sort of like give them some general <laughs> principles, you know, and, and then I think when you, when you, if you can kind of pull out general principles, then you can give people the space to figure it out for themselves. And I think that's, that's sort of the trick of education is to lead students into spaces in which they can really learn the thing for themselves. I think that's, you know, that's another thing that I have sort of, I, I thought that teaching was very much about Im imparting wisdom or knowledge, you know, from my head into your head. And what I've started to believe as I get older is that great teaching is actually about leading people into spaces and situations in which they can learn the thing you want to teach them for themselves. And so that's been a big, um, so that those two things together, I didn't think that they were connected when I first started talking, but that idea that, you know, we have various bits of luck as we go on in our lives. And it's sort of about how we adjust to those contexts and those situations and those bits of luck and what we do with them that charts the course of our lives. Plus that idea that we have to, you know, as a, as someone who is wanting to teach other people to sort of meet people where they are and what context they're in and try to open up a space in which they can learn the things that you want to teach them. And that space might actually just be a mental space. You know, that's what a book does. It kind of creates a space in which the person can kind of think and, and figure things out. And so um, that was a really long-winded answer to that question. No, but it's, it's, well, starting <laughs> demonstrates a, a, a level of humility you possess, which we truly appreciate. But you know, ends it on a very profound note too, that <laughs> it is about the individual also just being ready, you know, that, that the learning, the learner has to be ready. They have to be in spaces to be ready. So yeah. I think it's, it's a great way to, to wrap up this interview. We, we truly appreciate your time, Austin. Uh, we'll be sure to link everything back to the things you've mentioned and your, and your work, which has inspired us. Um, so, Thank you for being our guests on the uh, Schoolhouse 302. We, we really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent.